You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the iDigit Podcast. A podcast where we talk about the student perspective of navigating the world of archaeology and anthropology. I'm your host, Michaela. And I'm your host, Alyssa. Welcome to today's episode where we are going to be talking about imposter syndrome because that's what we love to do and what we love to hear. But we actually are going to be featuring a special guest, Jocelyn. I know Jocelyn Lee because she's coming in to my cohort at Stanford. We are the only two archaeologists in this year's cohort, so that's super exciting. She sent me an email and said to message her so I did and we've been talking for months now (laughs) yeah (laughs) best friends before even meeting each other so that's who Jocelyn is Jocelyn tell us a little bit about where you're coming from where you're going yeah um so I'm I just finished up a master's program here at UMass Boston um they have a specific historical archaeology program um and yeah, finish just finished up my thesis, so now just getting ready to go on to Stanford. Congratulations. Epic. Thank you. Epic. What, what was your dissertation about? So I looked at a couple of mining camps and so I specifically look at 19th and early 20th century Chinese immigrants in um out in Oregon, and I compared a couple of different sites together and looking at consumption, accessibility, and all under the narrative of race. It ended up being a very theoretical thesis, which was not the actual intent. <laughs> I started this program, so that was that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that'll help you out. That'll probably help you out going into a PhD, though, to have that theoretical aspect of it. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. We'll see. Is that where the imposter syndrome comes in? I hope so. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like, <laughs> you, you should have just introduced me as, oh, hello, we have a special guest star named Imposter Syndrome because. <laughs> yeah, no, Jocelyn and I's joke together, it's between our two anxieties. There's no way we can't get through this program together. <laughs> like there's nothing that will go over our head because we're just constantly thinking of all the things that will go wrong. <laughs> there can't be anything that happens that you're not prepared for because you've already exactly. thought of everything. Exactly. Yeah. So Theoretically. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Like every new email that comes in, we like screenshot it, send it to each other. And be like, did you see this? <laughs> Oh, you haven't here. Let me forward it to you, even though you already have it in your inbox. <laughs> Good, I'll have it twice, just in case one decides to disappear <laughs> for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> oh, great! Just start. in case, just in case. Yep. So it'll be fun. It'll be great. And so, are you? You're doing similar topics for your PhD, also, right? Is it yeah. like a continuation or a? Route. Yeah, it's going to be a continuation. I'm hoping to kind of expand in more a little. So um, the sites I ended up looking at ended up being more rural. So I'm hoping to look at more specific urban sites like in Portland. And I do have access to another site that's directly on one of like the old trading roads and stuff like that. Uh, so I'm hoping to kind of really like understand accessibility from accessibility from that front, you know, of actually comparing sites that have different access to the type of networks um, instead of just looking at more 
typical rural communities. Nice. How exciting. (laughs) It it sounds like you have your spot out way more than I do. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I know that I'm working in Cambodia and with LIDAR data, and that's (laughs) like where I'm standing right now. But yeah. We'll we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. We don't have to be there yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Jocelyn, how did you first become interested in archaeology? What brought you here? Yeah, so I actually kind of have a long story with my history with archaeology. Weirdly enough, I'd always wanted to be an archaeologist. My first exposure, which was to preface, like not archaeology, but it was me and my friends digging in our backyard and then finding a fossil when I was in like elementary school. That was the coolest thing in the entire world. And I very excitedly ran back into the house and asked my mom whether or not someone does this professionally. And she told me archaeologists, which in retrospect was very wrong, but she planted in my head. <laughs> um, so I like blaming my career choice on her because if it weren't for her, I never would have known about this word and have just started claiming myself to be an archaeologist ever since I was in elementary school. And then starting in like uh, around middle school and high school, I became really, really interested in kind of Chinese culture. So I guess for listeners out there, I am Chinese American. So I, and I speak and read traditional and simplified Chinese in Mandarin. So around that time is when I started becoming really interested in Chinese culture and Chinese language and Chinese history. So um, I started doing a lot of kind of like, you know, background reading for my own. Um, I started really, really working on my language skills by very shamefully listening to an excessive amount of Taiwanese pop and listening <laughs> an excessive amount of Taiwanese drama. <laughs> um, it was like the like early 2000s when like Meteor Garden and all that stuff became like a really Yes. Big, I feel like that's going to really resonate with like Asian Americans out there. So, <laughs> um, but like, yeah, like, no, Meteor Garden helped me with my Chinese. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> That kind of passion and interest kind of helped me realize that there was such thing as like Chinese archaeology in China. So actually for the for my in undergrad, I was very focused on doing Chinese archaeology, specifically like ancient China. And I did my first field school through a UCLA field school called Yangbanjai Project um, in about close to Xi'an in China. Um, and that was way back now over well, just 10 years ago, actually. Um, and it was really exciting. It introduced me to the world of fieldwork, but it was like a really weird field school in some ways because we were working with, you know, as you imagine, like UCLA academics, we were working, we were partnered with a Chinese university, but we were also working with the Shanxi Provincial Archaeology Institute. So it was kind of imagine like working with like you know, CRM slash uh, federal people along with two very different sets of academics. Um, so that kind of gave me an idea of like how people approach archaeology very differently, even in the field. Um, but anyways, uh, fast forward, um, I started doing a graduate program in China and Peking University studying Silk Road archaeology for a year or so, but then kind of due to personal reasons, I had to leave. Um, and when I came back, I needed to take like a break from archaeology to kind of reconfigure myself. You know, I really wasn't sure whether or not this is still the thing for me. And a funny story was that sometime uh, between my undergrad and my first graduate 
career, uh, I had volunteered with one of the PhD students uh, in Maryland to help him with some of his data sets and like working with historical archaeology. And like, cause I, at this point I was so used to doing like, you know, like Neolithic China, like really old stuff. And I was like, this isn't real archaeology. Uh, obviously bite me in the ass <laughs> um, because, you know, like, so after, after I took a few years off, like a year or two, I was fortunate enough to get into CRM through uh, one of my old undergrad professors and a bunch of, like people in my program were actually working for this one company. Um, and then I really got into CRM. And then it was through CRM that I was introduced more to historical archaeology. And I learned that like historical archaeology is really, really cool. Um, and that there is a bunch of different directions to go into historical archaeology with. And it was also during this time that I learned like that Chinese diaspora archaeology was a real thing. And I was like, yo, this is this is perfect, especially since I believe it was one of Barb Boss's articles mentioned how there needed to be more people in the field with an understanding of like Chinese culture and Chinese language. And I just like remember that instant going like, oh my God, like that's me. Be one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> Reapplied for grad school and you know, here I am. Yay. What an so awesome cool. story. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. That's that's so cool that you started so early or you knew very early that you wanted to do this because for me, it wasn't until I was like 20, like end of my undergrad career when I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, maybe I'll do this. Yeah, <laughs> I started off wanting to do like astronomy and then that devolved very quickly when I found out how much math was in it. But <laughs> <laughs> I just saw a post from 11 years ago from like a Facebook post being like, ah, like looking more into forensics for forensic science stuff from doing that. I found anthropology and then archaeology. Mm. And so that was when I was in eighth grade, grade where I was just like, haha, archaeology is a thing and I can do this. I mean, to be fair, like until I had that first field school, I had no idea. Objectively speaking, I had no idea what archaeology was, right? (laughs) You read about a little bit of it, but then like, you know, I don't know. I feel like an undergrad, at least I feel like I don't know anything, especially like the first two years when you're like, ah, freedom, what is this? And you're like, is that real? <laughs> so I, archaeology was just a word. <laughs> so for your, your first field school was in China. You said that uh-huh. was, had you ever been to China at that point? Was it like a familiar place or was it like a completely new experience that you were jumping into over there? Yeah, um, so my family's actually from Taiwan. Had been to China for like vacation. My first time going to China and living in China kind of on my own. I think I was very lucky that I am fluent in Mandarin so that I didn't really have that much trouble kind of, you know, meeting people. Um, and so there were a couple of people that was in the master's program at Peking University and I think (laughs) there was two like seniors in the archaeology in their undergrad archaeology program at Northwest University in Xi'an China which we partnered with Um, and so because there were a lot of like basically like experienced Chinese students that was working with us and they were very very nice people like I'm honestly still really good friends with them to this day um I actually attended one of their weddings 
I call them like my brothers and sisters kind of thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, I we're, we're super close. Um, <laughs> so I don't, I think because of like my language ability, I didn't find as big of an adjustment. There's obviously like some things here and there, but and like not to go too much into kind of like Asian American identity or anything, but I feel like maybe a lot of us at some point, like kind of question, you know, our Asian versus American identity. And for me, kind of like being in China for that first field school on my own, it kind of reaffirmed a lot of like, the Asian aspect of my identity. Mm -hmm. Felt like you belonged in both places. Yeah. And like, you know, like those, those, the the grad students like really made me feel like I belong. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. It's always good to have a good first experience because that definitely helps set your mind being like, okay, this is what it is. Awesome. It's like, I've heard stories from like bad field experiences with like bad directors, but like the grad students are great, but or it's like everyone's kind of not good. And so then it kind of like sets you off into like maybe archaeology is just not for me. With that one bad experience, you don't know. But who has like five grand to spend on another experience? Right. Other than in grants, which is in our episode before this one. Yeah. Talked about grants. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I would say my first or my only field school, I guess. That was a bad experience. But the thing I did before that which was the Mexico research that was an amazing experience but I had to get like a technical field school under my belt in order to be able to work the CRM job and so there they just randomly like roomed you with some random students at the university that was near the dig site and so you weren't even like hanging out with people on the dig it was just like random people in the university on your off time when you weren't there and oh, the girl I was roomed with was very problematic and like, oh, it was, it was such a bad experience. But the archaeology was fun. <laughs> Just everything that wasn't <laughs> like during the field school was an issue. So mm-hmm. at least you enjoyed the digging. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That didn't like stop me from I knew it was her, not the archaeology yeah. part. Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. Good. I was able to dissociate those two <laughs> experiences. But yeah, yeah, the money part is definitely a, a factor for a lot of people. Yeah, Even with sure. like, I almost did a UCLA field school also. It was in Southern California, though, and they wanted like $3,500 or something for this field school. And I was like, but I live down the street. Like, I don't want to. <laughs> want to pay that much money and they made you do like a $500 deposit once you got into the field school and then I decided I couldn't afford the rest of it and they kept the $500 deposit and I was like oh no I know that there's like that what what is that website like IPS or something it's like the IFS IF international probably IFS for field school international field school I don't remember it's something like that we will link it (laughs) yeah yeah it's like I remember finding things through that and then I ended up just like look I don't remember how I found it but I found the Balkan Heritage Field School which is based out of Bulgaria so and that was cheaper than the IFS because it was I didn't get the credits because I didn't want to have the credits and so and it wasn't like a big company was it like a big company or like a private oh it was it it was a private institution in bulgaria instead of like being based in america and sending people off around the world i'm like i kind of liked how it was actually in the country that i was going to be doing the research and work and so then it was just i don't know it just felt more 
I felt more comfortable because I'm like, okay, this is the place I'm going to be going. And this is the institution and the people I'll need to talk to in the country rather than being like, I'm calling um, this American company who's going to be trying to transfer the information over to a different company and then all like a whole other steps and probably more money. But it was it was a great time, though. (laughs) That's cool. Jocelyn, how'd you find your field schools? I think it was. Yeah, I don't remember one of the many websites. Yeah. <laughs> about different options available. And then I was like, oh, this one's a chat. I want to go. Yeah. Uh, apparently, my field director later told me that they didn't, she didn't want to accept me because I would have been too young. <laughs> uh, but she's oh. like, she speaks Mandarin. Just kidding. We're going to take her. Somebody that we had in my field school in Bulgaria, he had just come from China from a field school. So he went from like one month in China to one month in Bulgaria. I'm like, I'm like, oh, my God, that's so much work. <laughs> like speaking from like knowing a couple of like Chinese archaeologists and actually being immersed in that grad and pro- like programs over there. Like, I feel like that's not that unusual, honestly, like. I have so much respect for a lot of Chinese archaeology, especially like their students, because like whatever field opportunities they have, especially international, like they will hop on that so quickly so they can get that experience. It's really a lot of my uh, peers, like they've dug all over the world a lot more than like American students have, which I understand like a lot of it is like a financial thing. Um, but I think it's like the way the their universities support them. It's so much better. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. This guy was from some university in Alaska. Oh, okay. So was he American? Yeah, he's American. Oh, he was American who went to China for a dig yeah. and then went to Bulgaria. Oh, okay. Yeah, he wanted to do Chinese uh, archaeology. But <laughs> he just went to he just got his masters at Durham University. So in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> he's kind of gone all over. <laughs> I'm proud of him. I don't talk to him. I just see all of his posts and stuff and I'm just like, I'm so proud of you. That's crazy. He's all over the place. I know. (laughs) I mean, I guess if you look at our last couple years, we're kind of all over the place, too. I know. Like, this is the most stationary I've been in years. But now I'm not stationary anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't lived lived at home in, what, seven years? (laughs) Crazy. Crazy. (laughs) <laughs> cries in living room oh. <laughs> dining room bed yeah i'm gonna miss my mom buying all my food for me but that's just that's about it <laughs> time to finally be an adult god i don't want to do it no i'm kidding i do <laughs> anyway <laughs> where were we see imposter syndrome so my imposter okay. syndrome prevents me from going into the real world so i just stay in school <laughs> the whole time yeah, yeah. Me too. with no plan to escape so. exactly and you know what we'll talk about that more after this break so imposter syndrome we heard a little bit about jocelyn's life and how she got into archaeology now we're going to go a little bit more into imposter syndrome and even though we have degrees and we're doing things we can still feel like we don't belong (laughs) like we're (laughs) inadequate (laughs) (laughs) okay so what are some of the main like when are the times during school or work when you feel the most out of place like you don't belong there what are some examples of like memories you have of feeling like you're an imposter 
I sometimes I feel like the feeling doesn't really go away. It's just that like it's just a little louder and it creeps up sometimes, like more so than other times. But like in general, it's just like a constant state of hello. Do I truly belong here? <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes that's just a very light whisper. You can barely hear. But then other times it screams at you. <laughs> like but do you like really want to be here (laughs) (laughs) right it's like oh congratulations everyone actually hates you goodbye Uh, (laughs) yeah i mean i'll we michaela and i had like a a therapy session with each other at each other the other day and a lot of my stuff we found out comes from like sports and softball and like team stuff like that but Academically speaking, I was recruited into Dartmouth through softball. And so that I always felt like I didn't belong at Dartmouth because I got in like the back door or whatever and like didn't actually have to have whatever qualifications all these other people had to go in. And so that was like the start of my academic imposter syndrome like even though I got straight A's in high school and like did all AP classes and above a 4.0 GPA like I still felt like like I was the dumbest smart person at Dartmouth (laughs) yeah actually I think for me it also kind of for, for me it definitely goes back into like high school because the environment that I grew up in is very not compared to like west coast of like a lot of asians but considering where we are were like our high school was about like 30 percent asian and we were like very like competitive asians and it was very much like you know we had like the standard like regular honors ap classes and it was like if you didn't take honors class for anything you're automatically deemed as stupid kind of thing i was never that student to like really want to excel academically and I never really like thought of myself that way either even for like undergrad you know I was like "Mm, I'm going to the bare minimum to apply for schools and that's exactly what I did (laughs) (laughs) and so I think like a lot of that especially since you know I went to school with people that did end up going to a lot of like the Ivies and like top schools with you know ridiculous scholarships etc that I think that feeling of like inadequacy is like especially going into like undergrad kind of just like it kind of like locks in permanently and I remember when I went to China for grad school at that point I had a couple of like field seasons under my belt but I remember thinking it's like oh the only reason why I'm even in this top school is because I'm international student and they just want my money like I don't belong here (laughs) I'm just a bank Um, yeah I think a lot of it kind of just comes from like you know early on of like already knowing thinking that you were already academically below other people from like public school and honestly like archaeology is the only reason why I tried in academics because I was like oh I like this (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to be good at it I guess (laughs) (laughs) you found your passion (laughs) yeah yeah what about you Michaela I would have to say I don't know I mean What's the like, root of your imposter syndrome? Oh, God, that's so hard. <laughs> Finding that root memory that I have was during my undergrad and just kind of like being in classes and I became friends with people who were like definitely like straight A's. I mean, I was straight A's as well, but 
like do we just like gravitated towards each other and we would have study sessions and stuff but sometimes like things would click for them and they wouldn't click as fast for me so then I was just like why am I even doing this like it just doesn't make sense to me or it's like they would be speaking up in classes or like other people would be talking and raising their hands and I would just be like kind of dwelling on it more how did you think of that like not wanting to speak up in case like I was wrong in a way but it was just like, well, you don't always like then thinking about it later. It's like, well, you don't always have to speak up and talk and give your give your two cents or whatever. It's just like, I, I mean, I don't know. I, maybe I was probably wrong anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I totally I totally get that. It's like you're like, no, like, what's the point of speaking up? if you're just going to be told you're wrong. You're probably yeah. are wrong. So don't speak up. <laughs> exactly. And then it would just be like, well, maybe I don't belong here because I don't know if I'm correct or not. Maybe just the ways that I'm thinking aren't even correct and I don't even know what I'm doing here. And then it would just go until it's like grab the hole. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd just be like, I love this major. <laughs> 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 I belong here. This is what I want to do. Which is uh, accurate. <laughs> um, so I think it's really funny that you brought up like the whole speaking up in class because like, you know, like imposters, are, like obviously we also like have that so deeply ingrained. And like for me, like speaking up in classes has always been a challenge for me. And all that is because imposter syndrome. And then so my advisors know this, but in, in like when, in this master's program, like we all be on our computers. And then like literally, I would have friends that we would chat on like in class, not to like not talk about schoolwork, but to literally be like, okay, I have this thought regarding what someone else in the class just say. Does this sound stupid? Like, please validate me <laughs> in private before I speak up in class. And yeah. we do that for each other Wait. constantly. We're gonna do that, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and eventually we told our professor and he was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry you have to do that. And I'm like, oh, it's fine. Like, this is what's working for us. <laughs> the only reason why we speak up in class. <laughs> it's like, oh, no worry. I'm used to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would like write down the answer on my like sheet or something and my friend would be like next to me and she'd, they would look over and I'd just be like, this is the answer, but I'm not going to say it. And then it would be the answer. And I'm like, Haha, nice, Michaela. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I bet it goes deeper into like other things because it's like, oh, I guess it. Oh, actually. <gasps> oh, OK. Memory brain blast. <laughs> So back in like elementary school, I repeated the second grade, not because like I needed to, but I went from a public to a private school. And in the private school, they learn cursive multiplication division in second grade, whereas in public, you would learn it in third. So then I was held back a grade and then I just felt like I I just didn't belong or something. And then it was just like, oh, I repeated the second grade. And then it would kind of be like, oh, are you stupid? It's like, no, I didn't, I, I don't know. So then it was just kind of like a, not an identity crisis at all, but I don't. Yeah, it just kind of becomes like really deep seated of like, haha, you do not belong because you know, yeah. in second grade, it's like, no. <laughs> yeah, or it's like you were too stupid that you couldn't learn multiplication and division later than everyone else or cursive. And it's like, nobody even uses cursive. How do they even find out that you repeated the grade? Oh, because like, we tell them ourselves. We would tell them. And then <laughs> like the could, kids in your class, you're like, oh, I already, <laughs> like I was in second grade. It would be by age too. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it would just be like, oh, I just came from this school. I don't know how I did it in second grade. But then it would just kind of like 
It's like, I don't feel like I belong because I belong with people my age, not the people younger than me by a year. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm an October baby, so I'm like a late baby anyway. (laughs) Yeah, you're still not the oldest in the class. Yeah, but yeah, it was was, maybe that was maybe the root. I don't know. We'll find out. I'll talk about it with my <laughs> therapist. <laughs> yeah, I love her so much. Yeah, Jocelyn and I have already been mapping out like when to go to therapy when we get on campus. <laughs> like, do they have access to therapy on campus? We're not even there yet, but I just need to know. It's important. Yeah, a thousand percent. Especially in this time too, where you have to like do a lot of brain work and living, yeah. trying to live a social life as long as well as academia, and then yeah, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff happening. You need to talk it's to somebody true. about it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll link a therapist in the description. Box. <laughs> oh man, like I can't even imagine starting a program right now which is like something like in my brain that I'm having hard like (laughs) coming to terms with like you're going to be starting a PhD and the whole world is on fire like good luck (laughs) and I think that's like my main source of imposter syndrome right now is just like am I going to be able to focus enough to like get classes done and do these papers and all that while everything else is happening yeah (laughs) yeah I agree and it's like well like are we are we gonna be like risk kind of burying ourselves in the fake world of academia and like not staying up to date with all that stuff just just to prove that like we belong at Stanford (laughs) or you know (laughs) it's like am I gonna have to turn off my phone for five months to ignore the world while I do classwork or yeah I don't know it's a lot of stuff that's gonna have to go into my brain at once and I'm kind of nervous for it (laughs) for sure I also think that like you know we're going to Stanford and so that's obviously like a big ass name scary um, thing yeah it's definitely like one of the more like biggest names like I ever been associated with so I'm just like what a time to bring shame <laughs> because I do not belong. <laughs> I barely belonged at UMass Boston, and like my friends would be like, "What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> um, oh, because I guess I should have mentioned this earlier. I also like won the thesis award, and then so a lot of the ones wow. every time I've like felt like shitty about myself, like Jocelyn, you're literally an award-winning student. I'm like, I don't belong. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, should it have been accepted? (laughs) It's like, my advisor just felt bad for me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They were just in a good mood when they read my thesis. Like, it was all chance. I don't, I don't know if like, Liz, if you feel any of this, but I think part of this also definitely being like, uh, I'm not minority woman in the field of a very, very white field, right? And it's like, oh, like, maybe they just accepted me to like, ah, yes, checkbox. (laughs) (laughs) They tokenized you guys. Yeah. I think for me, it's not minority woman as much because like I'm a quarter Japanese so I'm very white passing and everything but I think just being a woman in general in archaeology is also 
like intimidating because all the big names you see like reading papers like scholarly papers and all that stuff they're all male like I've had a lot of female archaeology professors but like interacting like in the field and with research not so much I feel like I think from like what I've come across in my readings and life so far that's definitely the same with me Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, even at, in like CRM at ACOM, like there's mm-hmm. one woman that I work with and then everyone else is male in the whole company, pretty much. Like yeah. it looks like unless they're like a secretary or like stuff like that. So you don't even yeah. see a whole lot of like female faces around you in the working world. But the girls who are there are super cool. So yeah, yeah. I'm actually lucky because like a lot of the smaller CRM companies out especially in Maryland, they're actually woman-owned. So the one that I worked with, um, my boss was a woman and she's super cool. She was so good to us. I can't even begin to describe how amazing she is. (laughs) So, yeah. That's awesome. And now you have Barb going into Stanford. I'll steal her from you for a little bit whenever I need to. It's fine because if you steal Barb away, I'll just go back to my MA advisors and I'll just keep crying to them. But they already knew this is going to happen. So <laughs> They're just waiting on the day you run back. <laughs> yeah, I was going to send them a crying emoji as like the subject line of an email. And you're like, oh no, what's wrong? Like, oh, here it comes. <laughs> we prepared for okay. this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What has been the one way that you have been able to keep yourself up and motivated through your degrees in research and work and life? I've been really lucky to have always had like a really amazing, supportive group of people around me just about at every stage of career that I am. Um, So like in CRM, even when I was like feeling really shitty about myself, you know, my bosses were amazing. My, the crew that I worked with is amazing and even uh so you know adding on to the imposter syndrome of feeling like I don't belong while I worked CRM I also did multiple volunteer research projects because I felt like I didn't I felt like I wasn't enough you know it's not enough to just do CRM (laughs) you also got to have at least two research projects otherwise what are you even doing with your life um anyways (laughs) which like I know just sounds like insane but like (laughs) she also worked like multiple jobs in her master's degree too (laughs) (laughs) just like that desperate need to like make it seem like you are you are qualified but anyways it doesn't matter what environment I was in like whether it was like work environment or like the volunteer environment that I was in I've always had an incredibly strong network of supportive people and it's funny you brought up gender roles Liz, because a lot of for me a lot of people were women and they're also like I mean they're not necessarily aside from my boss like they weren't necessarily in like high up positions in any way but it was like especially the people that I I like volunteered with, like the group of us quickly like realized how there was a kind of like vacuum of like not like women not supporting each other well enough. And then so we decided early on that that's what we were going to be for each other. And so, you know, anytime we felt like we didn't know anything, we constantly validated each other. And it's the same thing at my work and at my master's program, like, we constantly we constantly feel like we don't belong we're just absolute trash and then we I have really great people to be like no like uh, like you're not and curious lists of reasons why you're not and I think at my master's program 
you know, I, and like Liz, like, you know, this, like, I love my advisors so much. They're, they're amazing. You do. <laughs> yeah, yeah like being mean to them a lot um, but they're also like like incredibly supportive in every way possible i feel like i should do like a name chat or something like that in case i ever listen to this <laughs> so steve Sullivan, nidra lee doug bolander shirley tang like they've all been absolutely amazing and supportive in every way possible Steve, I've heard so much about you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so he's never going to get a link to this podcast. (laughs) But, you know, they've been really great, like, along the way of just constantly giving me validation and telling me, like, like, critiques that were helpful, for sure. Because it's it's so easy to tell yourself, like, I am enough and I can do all this. But then it's just like that little voice in the back of your head is going to be like, but are you? And (laughs) it's hard to, it's hard to, like, quiet that voice on your own. And it's like, you can obviously, like, do things and say things to yourself and meditate and, yeah, all that stuff. But having the validation from the people around you is so important. You can't mm-hmm. do things on your own. <laughs> I mean, you can, but you can't. We are all children. We need to hold each other's hands. Like, hey, <laughs> on that note, though, I think like the more I've realized that no one knows what they're doing, the better I've felt, too. Because like going yeah. through life, like even my mentors are like, oh, I had no idea this existed until someone told me and now I'm telling you and like that sort of thing. And yeah, like the more you grow, the more you realize no one knows what they're doing. And they're all just trying to figure it out. And some people look at it a lot better than others. But yeah, yeah, I think realizing that helps a lot too. And just like knowing that you can ask for help when you need it. Yeah. And yeah, and that's okay to ask for help because everyone does. Yeah. Or everyone should. Not everyone yes. does. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's a whole conversation about why, about why fragility and toxic masculinity that can happen yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know during my master's, I needed help, but I was, I've been so used to doing things on my own and only asking for help if like I knew what I needed help for. So if like I didn't know and I it was just like, I, I like, I fine. I just don't know why I'm just feeling like this about everything. And then it was just like, I don't need to talk to anyone. I'm just going to hold it in. Wee! <laughs> and then I figured it out. <laughs> I was like, oh, I should have done this so long ago. Yeah, because you don't want to ask about, like, you don't know what you don't know. So you don't want to just ask because then it sounds like you're dumb. Yeah. <laughs> or you think it sounds like you're dumb. You probably don't sound dumb. But you're like, oh, I don't want to bother this person with my things that I don't even know are wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially during the time where papers are due, dissertation is happening, and so everyone is just doing their thing, and you're just like, oh, I don't want to inconvenience them. That's the big word, inconvenience. But but you're inconveniencing yourself because you're not going out for help. (laughs) Uh, So I will say one thing that I feel like my cohort did really well was, my master's cohort, was that like kind of right in the beginning around like the first semester where like oh shit like there's gonna be a lot of like writing assignments maybe like there's a group of us that can get together to like peer edit each other's papers before assignments 
and that ended up being like really helpful like granted like towards the end usually when like assignments were due like we're like oh shit like no i don't have it like two more days before this can't like it became like a, such a clusterfuck because you know like grad school and like finals and you're like what even is time but i, I think like having some of those conversations established beforehand so hey list by the way do you want to peer edit for each other um hell yeah i do <laughs> excellent um, having these conversations established beforehand glad we settled is that a good way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to be like oh yes we are not inconveniencing each other because we've already established this <laughs> yeah i mean we're already peer editing emails that are like one sentence long so <laughs> Imagine when it's a full paper. <laughs> Man, I think my biggest fear that I haven't overcome yet because I haven't done it yet are conferences. Oh. And that's something in the academic world that I am not looking forward to. And I really want to find out a way to change that mentality because right now I'm just terrified. Just of like talking about something I've done research on and then having it be like disputed in the audience live in front of people <laughs> like freaks me out <laughs> let's stick with me i've done too many conferences okay. i'm not great at them but i've done too many <laughs> teach me your ways because i'm terrified i i i haven't actually found like people dis disputing you like at conferences just so you know so like yeah don't don't let that be a huge deterrent and we'll be back after this break. Welcome back from our break. Right now, we're going to be just giving a little bit of advice, little tidbits here and there, and talking more about the feeling of inadequacy. Because we are professional imposter syndrome. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. That's one thing I'll claim professional to be. We are qualified to give this advice. Actually, I don't know if I'm qualified enough to be able to give it. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, like Jocelyn was saying before, I think the network or support network is the most important part of getting through anything, especially academia and grad school and that sort of thing. Because if you try to do this stuff on your own, it's just going to be such a hard time. 100% very difficult. <laughs> yeah. I, I do have another piece of advice, actually, uh, that Barb gave me a couple of weeks ago. Um, but she was saying how, you know, all of us are like, we're all here at this stage of our career still going on for one reason or another. And that means like there's something about us that's managed to get us this far. And so like, you just need to identify what that is and like kind of take that as like essentially like your strength to like help you keep going out of that makes sense I, I definitely absolutely butchered up exactly what she told me so, i get it that? though i get it <laughs> okay good i don't know what it is but i'll try to find it i guess <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on it yeah no that's that's really good <laughs> advice yeah like obviously you're here for a reason and that reason is Either you meeting people who helped you get here or you putting in the work and getting those grants and applications and all that stuff done. And It's not like Stanford was just like, how do we pick the two worst people in the entire world? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we're just giving out charity applications this year. <laughs> to be our only two archaeology cohort. No, stop it. 
Yeah, we only had two archaeology applications, but you know, we needed. Yeah. To- <laughs> we got it because we were the only two. Like no one else applied. That's the only reason we got it. Absolutely. Do you think that you were, if you were given the numbers of how many applicants there were, that would change your feeling? Ooh, that might make me feel a little prouder of myself. I don't, I don't know if it changed my feeling though, because then I. If I'd be able to like look up all these people, I'd be like, oh, they're way more qualified than I am to do. No, no, no. You're not. You you don't know who these people are. You don't. You're not given names. You're only given a number. A number would make me feel better. Yeah, but if yeah. I had names where I could like stop no. them and see all their accomplishments, no, no way. <laughs> That's a breach of confidentiality. I feel like it would. It would like give me that like. And then and this is a, this is how bad the imposter syndrome is because and I'm about to say these words but like it would give me that false sense of confidence for like a second because <laughs> you're like ah oh, I beat all these people into like getting into the school but like ah oh, but what is so weird about me that they wanted me <laughs> like was it pity I bet it was pity <laughs> is it because I'm Asian definitely <laughs> that was Absolutely. it because <laughs> Stanford has never accepted any Asians whatsoever i say this as an obvious lie (laughs) this is heavy sarcasm please do not do anything to me for legal purposes i am joking (laughs) exactly yeah Yeah, no definitely it'd be like a very short hit of dopamine good feelings then it (laughs) then i go right back into wondering why i'm here but yeah yeah. You were there for a reason. Yeah. What is that reason? How are you supposed to know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just like barge into like Andrea Barb's office the first time. I was like, why, why was am I accepted? <laughs> <laughs> so what did you see in me that I can't see in myself? Please help me. <laughs> Man, Jocelyn and I were talking about our interviews that we had the other day. And we both like focus on like the one part of the interview where we had no idea how to answer the question that was being asked of us like for mine it was like some question about political theory and anthropology and I was like I have no idea what this means and I don't even remember what I said in response to it but I know it was just like pulled out of yeah (laughs) (laughs) it was pulled out of somewhere I have no idea but like I after the interview ended I just focused on that part of the interview like for the next week and I was like oh I messed up like there's no way I'm getting into this program now yeah I've never even heard about political theory in anthropology see I don't even remember if that's what he asked I think I'm just so traumatized by the feeling I was feeling that that's what I've associated it with. <laughs> yeah I was also asked like it was a, a huge like diaspora question, which like you would think that after working on a thesis about diaspora for the last two years, I would be able to answer any question about diaspora really easily. But for whatever reason, like the specific question she asked, I was just like, oh, my mind, my mind was like, mm, don't know what's going on there. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of this word in my life. <laughs> di- di- diaspora, what is that? <laughs> That's not English. <laughs> That does. That sounds like a bad word. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't ever. Yeah, that sounds like a terrible word. Please never say it to me ever again. <laughs> Triggered. Like, <laughs> Triggered. <laughs> I was like, oh no no, it's pronounced diaspora. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she, she says it in a different dialect, which makes you just not register the word at all. <laughs> yeah, yes. definitely. I remember having so many like anxieties for interviewing because I'm like, I don't even know if I deserve this interview. And then I would go into the interview and I would like not I wouldn't blank. But like afterwards, I'm like, I have no idea what just happened. Yeah, but you kind of just cruise through yeah, it. It's like I think the last interview that I had was for a PhD in Manchester. And that was like March of last year or something like that. I remember like I got an email back from it after Alyssa and I, we saw a movie. I think it was captain marvel and then i like got an email saying like oh can we interview you in like the next year or the day after that or something I'm like yeah so then it was like three people on the computer because it was like a virtual thing and the main interviewer she i couldn't necessarily like i could not that i couldn't understand her it's like her mic wasn't the best she had like an accent she also like spoke a different language so then there was like a language difference with the manchester accent and then i was just like i just i just don't know what she's saying so then in some questions i would just like kind of pull things out of nowhere and i was like haha these had like they're like oh this this is very good interview like well we'll get an email and then it's like unfortunately since you're not a uk resident we can't give you this phd and i was just like oh see this was my question in the first place i'm like can i apply to this and then i didn't get an answer but i mean it was good experience because i think the interview i had before that was like when i was working at disneyland and that was like 2015 i don't get interviews i just not that i don't get interviews it's just like I just apply to things and then sometimes it's just like have a chat, but it's not necessarily like interview, interview, but maybe the chat is the interview. I don't really know. This PhD program was my first like actual interview that I've ever had with anything. So I think in my like last couple of like interviews for like jobs, I, as you guys can already see, I nervous laugh a shit ton. And I literally like, I feel like I got some of the jobs because I, no, actually, I know I got one of the jobs because I nervous laughed so much. Because afterwards, I was like, yo, like the other, the other candidate that was interviewing with me, like, I thought she was way more qualified. And so I was asking my supervisor, I was like, why did you guys hire me over her? And then she was like, you were, you seemed bubblier. (laughs) (laughs) We liked you more. I was like, I was nervous laughing, but all right. I know. It's called deflection. No. (laughs) I'm literally the exact same way. Like, I'm just like all smiley and I just like laugh a lot. I'm like, ha ha ha. And then I kind of get like a little serious when I like have like a serious question or whatever. But then I'm like, "Uh (laughs) like not ditzy. But maybe <laughs> did see. I don't know how that, like, how to like personify like how this was, how this is. But like inside your brain, you're like, oh my god, I'm so cringy. I'm dying. Yes. <laughs> As you're laughing, and they're, and but they're like, oh, like she's so happy and bubbly. We'd love to have her on the team. And in your mind, you're like, I'm not qualified. Why am right. I laughing in your right mind, now? <laughs> you're actually laughing at yourself at how badly you're doing. And they're like, ah, oh, yes, this person. Is happy let's take them <laughs> this person is going to be a great fit for our team they seem like they're just doing great with all this stuff and they're going to be a they're going to bring in a lot of joy and happiness to all of this oh my god i mean there will be a lot of tears but is that tears of joy or sadness <laughs> we don't know yet it's the it's a lying the laughing crying emoji it's just who knows if it's like sad crying or happy crying. lots of love happy we- face <laughs> live laugh love <laughs> 
internal screeching. I've never thought of that, though. Just, like, my nervous laughing. Like, all the things going through my mind. And then they're just like, oh, she's so happy. Like, she wants to be here with us. (laughs) I've never thought of it. (laughs) I feel like the laughter after getting asked a question is just a way to kind of pause and think about what you're going to say before you say it. Yeah, fill the silence. It's equivalent of, like, a deep breath, but, like, way more like awkward <laughs> yeah we're way more approachable mm. Ooh. <laughs> so to wrap this all up let's do a cup one or a couple things that we're happy about right now or good things that are happening and also bring awareness to one organization i already said in the last episode that i'm happy that i'll be moving into campus and have my own space and that sort of thing and get out of my parents dining room and the organization I want to bring awareness to right now is Lebanese Red Cross they just had an awful explosion in Beirut a couple days ago and Lebanese the Red Cross specifically is a good organization to donate to if you have money for that and heart goes out to everyone affected by that so one thing I'm happy about this week is I guess the same lines along of like what Liz is saying is just getting myself pumped up for moving out to Stanford and like starting that new chapter with new friends and stuff. It'll be it'll be good. Excited to actually meet friends, plural. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> She's allowed to have more than one friend. <laughs> no, I'm not. We we already had this conversation. <laughs> We're not. Um, I'm excited to meet my new best friend <laughs> in person. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> the only person I will have any interactions with ever for the entire time at Stanford. <laughs> and the cause that I kind of want to bring attention to is just, you know, asking everyone to support their local China towns right now you know they're getting hit really hard with COVID especially with all the anti-Asian sentiments and stuff like that a lot of these businesses have been going on for decades are now struggling to survive so yeah get your local Chinese food (laughs) I would have to say that I am happy for everything going well in my time packing and moving up to Sacramento so I'm excited to be up in Sacramento and just Northern California and near like areas that I really like, San Francisco and just the Bay Area in general. And I'm just excited to start another chapter in my life. And the cause that I want to bring awareness to is the crisis in Yemen. It's one of the worst humanitarian crises with 80% of the country's population requiring some form of assistance to just, you know, survive. And there's a one website called Project Hope that you can donate through. And just be sure to find sources, educate yourself about different crises that are happening and just just be aware. And I think it's important to get out of your social bubble to find information as well. Even though you might be getting so much information from the people around you, but be sure to like look things up and check things out yourself and look more into things and really research and just Love the world. (laughs) (laughs) Love the world. world. There's so much happening right now that it's hard to keep up with everything. And so just finding a new source that you're providing for other people to see, they can also add that to their list and then learn more about that. And then they you might see something, something that somebody else posted and 
there's just so many ways to be able to know information that's happening yes. around the world. But I will say, stop with the what about ism. I just experienced this yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell people what they should be posting, especially if they're already posting all of their activism. There's ways to educate people without projecting onto other people and so don't make anyone feel bad for doing their part in being a social activist because that's not cool and you can care about multiple things at once all right thank you jocelyn so much for joining us that yeah, was thank you for having great me great chit chat that was super sure. fun maybe we'll do it again in person when we're on campus <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i'm only an hour away I'll be your friend, Jocelyn. Wait, wait, wait. Am I going to have two friends now? I'm confused. I mean, Alyssa and I are basically We are one. one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. That was perfect. <laughs> we are three parts of one whole now. Yes. You are, you are being integrated, <laughs> integrated into our system. Welcome. <laughs> Excellent. I think. I don't know anymore. <laughs> Well, it's just, I think, actually a good way to end the section on imposter syndrome is, I don't know anymore. I don't know. <laughs> and I hope this has been some sort of help or just kind of a reassurance that everyone goes through this in some sort of way. And some people are just a little bit more vocal than others. And we are here to talk about it and let you know that it's normal and you're okay and you are valid. Yes. And we yeah. love you. We love you. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.